Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program with the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Melissa Kane. I'm a journalist and attorney and your moderator for today's program with former Congresswoman Jane Harmon. The Commonwealth Club has, of course, shifted from in-person events to virtual events during the pandemic, but we're so grateful for the support of all our virtual viewers. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Jane Harmon. She's a distinguished fellow and president emeritus of the Wilson Center, a highly regarded nonpartisan forum for global issues. Former, she's a former nine-term congresswoman from California, and she's the author of a new book called Insanity Defense, Why Our Failure to Confront Hard National Security Problems Makes Us Less Safe. In her tenure as a Democratic Congresswoman from California, she served for six years on the House Armed Services Committee and eight years on the Intelligence Committee. In her new book, she says America has used the same tactics to solve defense and intelligence issues since the end of the Cold War. And many of these strategies haven't worked, and the United States has become too self-satisfied as the lone superpower in global politics. And so today we're going to have a conversation not just about our national security challenges, but about reforms that she believes can help to rebuild American leadership and bipartisanship in government to get us to a safer future. Welcome, Congresswoman Harmon. Thank you, Melissa. And it's nice to be back in San Francisco, even virtually. I was thinking about this. This is my third appearance at the Commonwealth Club. The other two were actually. And San Francisco, uh, obviously, is a, a, a very special place to me. My parents lived there in their last years. My brother lives in Marin. Uh, two of my faves in still in politics are Diane Feinstein, who, were, who was elected same year I was, she to the Senate and I to the House. It was the so-called year of the woman, imagine. And uh, Nancy Pelosi, we got uh, one. <laughs> on, a, on a regular basis <laughs> in Washington still. And so uh, it's it's a great city and lucky you. I assume you're all there actually. And I, I'm, I'm physically here. here. It's a beautiful <laughs> cicada-free day. And... <laughs> In San Francisco. Go ahead and punish me. The cicadas are out in force in Washington, and they make even much more noise than the United States Congress. I'm not sure they get any further than the members of the United States Congress these days, but I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> if only Congress met every 17 years, that would be... I don't know. Maybe we'd be better off. But I want to start by uh, by asking you about the timing of your book. Um, you, you did leave Congress in 2011, and uh, and, you know, there's some great insights about what was happening with regard to national security and defense at the time. But, um, but why, why now? Why wait until 2021? Well, I didn't wait until 2021. I was elected to Congress, as I mentioned, in 1992, which was the first post-Cold War class. And in addition to serving on armed services and, uh, uh, and intelligence, I also served on homeland security. I was there on 9-11. And when I left Congress in 2011, I left because I was offered a job to head a uh, really extraordinary uh, uh, think tank in Washington, uh, named after Woodrow Wilson, the president, who was an international visionary. Uh, and it was nonpartisan, and it welcomed <laughs> all points of views and, and, and of view, and it focused on policy issues uh, in ways that Congress is not very capable of doing lately. So this, this book, which I started actually after I left Congress, 
is a policy memoir on where we've been for 30 years. Uh, I've lived through these and I've had a front row seat to a lot of the decisions, some good, some bad, and where we need to go. It also includes prescriptions for how to fix, how to confront some of the hard national security problems that we have not solved. Uh, we've gonna, we're probably going to get a lot of questions about what's happening with current events. So I'm just going to hold off on that for a moment and just really get back to the, and sort of start with the book. Now you write in the book that you arrived in Washington, DC as a newly minted Congresswoman right around the end of the cold war and how that, um, and how that shaped your perception of our national security and what it was like to be in Washington, uh, in that moment. Well, uh, it's a little, the backstory is a little bit longer. I grew up in Los Angeles, public school kid, went east to college and law school and moved to Washington, D.C., you know, back in the dark ages in another century uh, and uh, lived there much of the time uh, before I ran for Congress. So it's not that I came to Washington in 1992. I'm clarifying this because I saw a lot, some of which is in the book, in the early 70s. I worked for one of uh, California's senators, John Tunney. The other one was Alan Cranston. And I became his uh, legislative director and chief counsel. This is at a time when there were almost no women uh, in staff positions or in elected positions in Congress. And then after that, I went to the Carter White House for two years as the deputy cabinet secretary. And then after that, I practiced law, but a lot of time in Washington before returning to California to run uh, in the area I grew up. And I was elected to Congress, first elected office I had sought since junior high school treasurer, which I lost. Uh, but I was elected to Congress, as I said, in 1992, the so-called year of the woman, when we doubled the number of women in Congress. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a lot higher than, now than it was then, which I think is a very good thing. But at any rate, uh, I had a lot of background in Washington and I, and, you know, we can go into the politics of how I got elected in a lean Republican seat and all the rest of it. But, but um, what I found there was, uh, at the time, uh, a place that was becoming more partisan. Uh, when it became hard partisan was two years after I was elected in 19... 94, when I barely survived that election, won by 811 votes. Uh, but Newt Gingrich came to power, and he, uh, as the Speaker of the House, and he determined, and he would tell you this because I just had a conversation with him on his podcast, he determined that uh, the place had to be more partisan or the Republicans would not have kept the majority, which they had secured for the first time in 40 years. Oh, wow. Well, and, no, and I certainly didn't mean to imply that you uh, had never been to Washington. I just meant, <laughs> I just meant that, you know, that, that you were in office in a, in a really important time um, in American foreign policy, um, certainly modern American foreign policy with the end of the Cold War. And and in a moment where it might have been a good idea to, to do certain things that, that maybe we didn't do or could have done better. Uh, that's right. And one, one of the things I described was uh, being a, a newbie on the House Armed Services Committee. In those first two years, the chair of the House Armed Services Committee was Ron Dellums, who many may know or remember, uh, was uh, the congressman from Berkeley, California. His successor is Barbara Lee, who used to be on his staff. And he was an unusual combination of a former Marine 
and a, uh, a representative of a, of, a, of a place that was very, very much, and he would have said that he was, a very liberal district uh, that was uh, uh, happy that the Cold War was over and predicting, uh, uh, you know, let's hope decades of peace. Uh, but it was Dellums who said on the committee, I remember when he did it, when he said it, he said, you know, we don't have a plan uh, for the post-Cold War. We don't have a roadmap. We need a roadmap. And that's, that is really the frame of my book. We never had a roadmap. We were um, sufficiently um, uh, full of ourselves that we thought we won, Russia lost, uh, everybody wanted to be us. Uh, and that's all we had to do was enjoy being superpower. And it didn't turn out that way. China didn't want to be us. The terrorists wanted to take us out. Uh, and then came 9-11, which was a, uh, a huge uh, inflection moment for our history. And you write about how there were some people in the Republican Party, some conservatives who wanted a Pax Americana, who wanted to take this moment of sort of Russian weakness and and really sort of create an, an unparalleled uh, American point of leadership with lots of defense spending and other kinds of um, and other kinds of shoring up of our military. Is that what we should have done? And if not, what in retrospect should we have done in that moment? It seems like it was, it was kind of a unique moment and hard to know what to do. Well, I agree that it was unique and hard to know what to do, but we actually did both things. When the Cold War ended and we won, uh, we downsized the procurement budgets for defense and intelligence. We did this before I was elected to Congress. This is uh, in the budget cycle that really hit uh, as I was being elected. So we had less dollars to spend on procuring stuff. Now, uh, was that good or bad? We didn't have a plan. Uh, that was bad. Uh, we were not in, in a war, so maybe you could argue it was good. We were going to have a peace dividend and uh, spend it in constructive ways uh, domestically. But I represented, uh, and I put this in the book, uh, the area of California where most of our intelligence satellites are made. It's in Los Angeles, just south of Santa Monica along the coast, uh, west of the 405 freeway. Everyone at the Commonwealth Club knows where the 405 freeway is, or maybe. But anyway, uh, all the major defense firms were there. And with the procurement budgets cut, uh, here they had these triple PhDs who had won the Cold War, who, as I used to say, were out in the cold. They couldn't afford to employ them anymore. And so what did we do? Uh, this is the you know part one. Uh, Pete Wilson was governor of California, and I worked closely with him on this topic, not on every topic, but this one, on coming up with uh, dual-use strategies. So a satellite company like Hughes Electronics, which was the largest industrial employer in California at the time, it's since been acquired uh, by Boeing and some of the other firms. But anyway, Hughes uh, could make satellite buses. Those are the containers for satellites. They're sort of the, the outside. Uh, uh, and use them both for commercial uses and defense uses. So in other words, they could put the same factory to work making dual-use uh, satellite buses. And we came up with some other uh, ideas like this to keep the workforce employed. And why would we want to do that? Well, first of all, I think everybody supports employment. But second of all, why would you want to destroy the aerospace industrial base just in case you may need it later? So part one was downsizing. 
Part two was upsizing, just what you're talking about. And there was an increase in spending in the 90s and then a huge increase in spending after 9-11. And uh, one of the arguments I made in, in the book that I, I think is true is that we over-militarized our response to 9-11. We should have gone after uh, those who attacked us on 9-11. Every single member of Congress, except for one, Barbara Lee of Berkeley, supported an authorization to use military force uh, that's a congressional resolution uh, against those who attacked us, uh, mostly al-Qaeda, mostly in Afghanistan. But what happened was we did that pretty successfully, and ultimately we actually took down Osama bin Laden. Uh, but we stayed, and mission creep, and we're still there. And uh, now comes uh, Joe Biden's decision, which I am for, uh, to uh, move our troops, not, not our... Uh, our connection, but our troops out of Afghanistan. And well, one of the things you write about in the book is that, uh, so George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, um, was part of this, it was during his administration that we had this both sort of constriction of, of military, of the military spending, but also engaging in, you know, other kinds of um, foreign entanglements that may or may not have really, you know, really Put America at issue, but he also had a really strong foreign policy background, just like I won't say exactly like, but Joe Biden also has a really strong foreign policy background. Is that necessarily translate into doing the right thing in light of what we saw with with Bush forty one? Well, I I think Bush Obama, uh, uh, Biden is the first president since Bush forty one with serious foreign policy chops. The four presidents between Bush 41 and now, uh, Clinton, uh, Bush 43, Obama, and Trump had virtually no foreign policy experience when they were elected. And I think that uh, Biden, who chaired, let's understand this, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for years, has traveled to every part of the world, was in the Senate for you know decades and decades, uh, brings something that that the others didn't, and and sees foreign policy. I think in a way that's strategic, which Bush 41 did and the others since him really didn't. Uh, comment on, on, on Bush 41. Remember, uh, he uh, 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 went after um, uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, who had invaded Kuwait. And this was a limited mission. Uh, and he went in, they, they got Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, and then a whole bunch of people were pressing, well, let's Let's take him out. Let's do regime change in Iraq. And Bush 41, against that pressure, said, no, we've completed our mission and we're not doing that. Um, hmm. Then see what we did with Iraq a decade later. And so do you think a Joe Biden, you said you approve of Joe Biden's moves on Afghanistan to sort of reduce the military presence and increase the humanitarian or political presence. Um, what do you make of his response to um, recent issues in, um, in Israel? Well, let me explain uh, just one more sentence on Afghanistan. We, we don't have any good options in Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban is back. The Taliban has been trying to overrun uh, girls' schools. Uh, the Taliban creed is very anti-female. Uh, and uh, I don't applaud that in any way. And I, I frankly don't applaud them. Uh, but over 20 years, when you look at what we've really achieved, uh, it's quite little. Uh, we have uh, sort of put our finger in the dike and prevented worse things. 
uh, but we've lost thousands of troops. Uh, many more have been wounded. There are many more thousands of Afghans and others. There's a coalition force there who have lost their lives. We've spent trillions of dollars. And we can't prop up a 300,000-person military forever. So, I mean, what I am for is surging the, the, the uh, soft power that we have, uh, diplomacy and aid uh, and training in Afghanistan. But trying to be sure they want uh, their country, peace in their country, more than we do. We can't want it more than they do. So that's my, my position on that. Uh, what What is my view, you asked me, of, of, of Biden's um, actions or response to the issues in Gaza and Israel? Yes. Oh, well, that has been, uh, you know, part four in a very long movie, or depends how you count. But uh, I'm pleased that there is a ceasefire, but I don't think uh, long-term that that is a strategy. That is a, uh, you know, a cessation for the moment of violence. It doesn't resolve the issues uh, with the Palestinians, and uh, it also doesn't resolve the issues in Israel. Let's understand that Israel has had four elections uh, in the last year plus uh, uh, for Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu was unable to form a government in, in those four rounds. Other people have been given a chance. There are eight days to go for Yair Lapid to form a different coalition in Israel. So Israel has a kind of a uh, you know government in free fall at the moment. And Pal- uh, the Palestinian Authority was supposed to have an election, which Mahmoud Abbas, uh, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, postponed. Uh, allegedly because the polls showed that he might lose to a faction of Hamas, uh, which is not the government of the Palestinian Authority. Hamas is a, we think, and I would agree, a terror group based in in Gaza. So uh, where are we now and what's Biden doing? Biden has properly taken some credit for the ceasefire. He didn't do it alone. Egypt intervened and uh, and was very helpful. And uh, we played a a support role there. He had many, many calls with uh, Bibi Netanyahu and Mahmoud Abbas, and I think that's good. Tony Blinken is in the region now. But where where should we be going? Um, I, that's the question I always ask. Insanity defense is about doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Where should we going? What's the, the non, what is the more sane approach here? Well, I would say working with our allies in the neighborhood, we should be trying for a reset here. Uh, apparently, there's very little support for a two-state solution, something I, I am still for. I don't see any other solution that would be better for the people on the ground. But they have to want it more than we want it. Same point I was making about Afghanistan. It's their country, and and they have to want that. So if we can't get anywhere with that, uh, we have to do some of the things we're doing uh, at the moment, which uh, is helping with reconstruction of Gaza through international organizations and helping uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the, and the Palestinian Authority uh, become more uh, effective governors of, of the Palestinians. Uh, it's tricky because there's a big worry, and I think it's fair, that our aid, uh, reconstruction aid to Gaza, may be siphoned off by uh, the Hamas folks to build more rockets. Uh, a lot of the underground tunnels where they've done a lot of this work have been destroyed. But so have the above ground houses. I mean, the tragedy here is people on both sides lost. Uh, maybe they're, you know, Hamas gained some advantage and maybe Bibi Netanyahu gained some advantage. 
but um, the losers were, uh, you know, average citizens and especially uh, kids, huge number of kids were killed in this, in the fighting. Uh, do you think he should have gotten in earlier or sort of, you know, sort of taken a big stand earlier? It seemed like he'd waited at least several days um, after the fighting, at least to be public. Maybe there were back channeling, you know, things happening uh, right away. But it seemed that publicly the calls for a ceasefire didn't happen until there was already so much damage. Well, there were calls for de-escalation. And we can go parse all the semantics. Uh, I think there were a lot of back-channel conversations. I'm for that. I don't think you can negotiate everything uh, in public. And so I, I'm for that. But again, the status quo ante, in my view, is not where we need to go. We need to go to a better place. And with both countries, in the well, one's not a country, with, the, <laughs> with Israel and the Palestinian Authority in the middle of elections, at least you could imagine that maybe the coalition in Israel and whoever wins the election in the PA uh, could be people who want peace, want want a more permanent peace on the ground. And so I think Biden's uh, carefully threading a needle here, and I think he should. Let's understand, too, two other things happened that were new in this fighting, uh, and both of them horrible, uh, I think. One is that uh, inside Israel, uh, the Palestinian, uh, the, the Arab Israelis, who have been citizens of Israel for years, started fighting with their neighbors. Uh, so Israel was turned on itself in certain ways. And similarly, the Democratic Party in the United States, where there has been for years a wing that has called Israel the occupier, used the A word, apartheid, and all of this, uh, but was in a minority, is gaining some traction. So I think the conversation both places should change. This is not to say I don't support uh, Israel as a Jewish state. I strongly support Israel as a Jewish state. My own father had to wear the yellow star in Germany uh, when he attended medical school and was lucky to be a uh, refugee uh, to America in 1935. Uh, But I do support that. But I also support uh, Israel as a pluralist democracy, which was part of the dream uh, and certainly part of the Zionist dream. And I would love that to happen. And so you're confident that Biden, at least so far, has been, to your point, threading the needle as a, in a way that you think is, a, yes. that you approve yes. of, to the extent we all know what's going on. <laughs> and also, let's understand, uh, is uh, his foreign policy, as articulated um, uh, now, includes uh, in addition to worries about China and Russia, which are proper, uh, includes worries about climate, domestic terrorism, and uh, the pandemic. And those are really core issues threatening the United States. Uh, I'm not saying Israel's irrelevant. I think Israel is you know, certainly in my heart and something many Americans care deeply about. But uh, Israel also has uh, a, 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 a surging economy and as Israel always says, the ability to protect itself. And I think, I'm not saying it's not an interest of the United States, but in terms of threatening the the lives of everyday Americans, Biden is trying to put together a foreign policy strategy uh, that connects foreign policy to the, the, the core threats against our country. Well, yeah, so you point out that Biden was the chairman of the the Foreign Relations Committee, but he was also chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee during Robert Bork's uh, 
Supreme Court nomination hearings, which you point to as something that at least Republicans will um, say that's where bipartisanship really started to crumble, where things got uh, while whatever you think of Mr. Bork's. Um, you know, judicial philosophy, it got really personal. Uh, and that is something that, that even Joe Biden was involved in. I mean, are you confident that he'll be able to uh, to act in a bipartisan way or be able to bridge some of the divides, even though he was, you know, longstanding <laughs> fixture in Washington and certainly there at what cert- certain people would point to as, as really the moment where, um, you know, civility broke down? Well, I I think civility did break down in the late 80s. I wouldn't attribute the whole thing to the Bork hearing, as unpleasant as that was. Uh, but I would also say that uh, the negative ad, the negative political ad, was developed, was invented by a uh, Republican consultant named Lee Atwater. And when I was running for the first time in, in 1992, everyone said, oh, you've got to go negative against your opponent. I didn't do it. I never did that. Um, uh, I, I, I had comparative ads from time to time, but the negative ad, the whole concept of that, why the other guy's terrible, not what, not, not why you're good, but why he or she is bad, uh, I think has been enormously destructive force in our politics. And then you add to that, uh, the Bork hearing, which as you point out, was when, uh, civility broke down. Uh, that was a problem. And, uh, uh, it, it, uh, uh, I think set a tone that just got worse. I, I, and um, I, I have never, I, I think Biden has defended his role there. There's some, certainly some things that, that he did that were uh, uh, you know, good, but, and then came the Anita Hill, uh, Clarence Thomas hearing that came next. Uh, Anita Hill was the alleged uh, woman who was uh, 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 assaulted by uh, 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 Clarence Thomas and she was the searing image in the in the election that I ran in, uh, and uh, the right to choose and all of that was was what sent many women, including me, to Congress. So, um, uh, Joe Biden, did he was that a you know would would we give him an A? Would he give himself an A? Uh, it'd be nice to ask that. Uh, but over his years in Congress, he uh, it seems to me uh, did a. Uh, a very good job of building bipartisan coalitions. And I remember one in particular, which was um, when he was in the chair and John McCain uh, was on the floor and a, uh, a cancer bill passed the Senate. And, and McCain looked up and said, uh, Mr. Chairman or whatever, uh, I asked unanimous consent to change the name of this bill to the Bo Biden bill. And this was just after uh, Joe Biden's older son, Bo, had died of uh, brain cancer, actually the same cancer that killed John McCain a few years later. How ironic. And you could see the tears welling in his eyes. And I thought, yes, uh, as as toxic as the partisanship is in Washington, just occasionally uh, these relationships work. And there was one that was really working. Well, your book, you cite so many instances, especially in in, um, in the national defense arena of bipartisanship. I was getting nostalgic <laughs> a little reading your book about about all the the cross the aisle work that that you all did, um, uh, you know, to to shore up the na- the nation's defenses, or at least try uh, the best you could uh, in Congress at the time. Now, we in terms of of this kind of of a sort of tragedies 
spawning that kind of cooperation. What do you make of the COVID relief bills? That's the sort of first thing that comes to mind when you look at sort of something that both parties, or at least lots of folks in both parties, were able to to come to agreement on. Well, uh, you know, can't can't we all get along? Uh, is I don't think this pandemic is selecting us by party registration. And I used to say the terrorists aren't going to check our party registration before they blow us up. And and COVID nineteen is a form of terrorism. So uh, it makes no sense to me, zero, uh, to split along party lines. I understand there are disagreements about how to target these bills and the cost of these bills. And there's certainly a disagreement about the debt and deficit. While I was in Congress, that was something I focused on with a a group in Congress uh, that were called Blue Dogs. Um, uh, Long story about where the name came from. Uh, But it... In 1997, on a a strong bipartisan basis, many of us supported a balanced budget and really thought that uh, things would change. And there was a budget surplus, imagine, for 10 minutes. And then came 9-11 and uh, forget about it. But but what I'm saying about these bills is, and including the next one on infrastructure, who's against infrastructure? Absolutely no one uh, is against infrastructure. The issue is, How do you define it? What do you fund? What over what period of time? And how do you pay for it? And those are conversations we need to have. And there is no corner on wisdom. And I strongly believe we'd have better conversations if we could uh, not fight it out in the press. He's wrong. So on. She's wrong. uh, But actually sit down and and work on it. And I think that's Joe Biden's instinct. If you're going to ask me how well is it going? eh, Uh, it's hard, but his predecessors gave up on it. And the good news is he's not giving up, at least as far as as I can tell. And it would be wonderful, wonderful to have bipartisan agreement on a good, strong infrastructure bill. Well, how much, and this is one of the audience questions here, um, to what degree are um, folks to Biden's left in, in in the Democratic Party and even outside of the Democratic Party but but on the left, uh, influencing or preventing uh, his ability to make the kind of deals that need to be made to get an infrastructure bill passed, for example? Well, uh, they're Democrats, too, and they got elected the same way everybody else did, and their voices deserve to be heard. And some of their views are right. Maybe some are wrong. I mean, I, I always had opposition on the left uh, from uh, Democrats, or my last three races I did. Uh, I'm very progressive on social issues. I can't think of one that, that anyone would, would criticize me for on the left. Um, but I'm less progressive, if that's the way you want to see it, on, uh, on defense and uh, 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 economic uh, issues. Uh, and, um, and I believe that we need, uh, you know, a, a, I need to, we need the right ways to protect our country. Uh, from from attacks, and I'm you know I'm not for defunding police, and I'm uh, I'm for reforming police, things of that nature. But I think that Biden has listened to people on the left. I think some of that he is appointed to his cabinet uh, are on the left. I think a lot of his climate strategies uh, are mostly mostly reflect contributions from the left. And I agree with him, and I agree with them that climate is a real risk, and. Uh, especially in California, where I gather we've reached drought numbers now that are as high as 
uh, July drought numbers. And, you know, the, the place is a tinderbox. Uh, and it's, it's extremely scary. Yeah, every year it seems like we are breaking records. Every year it's the most, the biggest uh, fires and uh, yeah, and drought and, you know, lowest snowpack. And it just, it, it seems like um, there's a once in a century event every year these days. Yeah. Well, my, I live, my official residence is on Venice Beach, where I'm going later this week. I can't wait to get away from the cicadas. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's a tsunami zone. I mean, it's a flat area, and just think, climate, you know, and, and extreme climate also prompts storms and, 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 and so forth, and it is very worrisome how exposed all of California is, and then uh, overlay that with earthquakes. I was certainly there. I was in Congress for the Northridge earthquake uh, and was in living then in Marina del Rey in Southern California, and, you know, the bookcases broke and the ground shook, and it's landfill there, so it was pretty vulnerable. And lots of people have gone through uh, all these challenges in California. The good news is, uh, I'm totally unbiased, it's still paradise. It's still the best place to live. It's still pretty great. <laughs> well, especially if you're if you're spending summers um, or even just part of the summer in Washington, D.C., which I'm from the East Coast. Um, I'm from Atlanta originally. And so um, that whole Southeast, um, even up through the Mid-Atlantic, summertime is really not something I miss. <laughs> the weather is so crazy. Now, one, one of the um, viewers has asked here, what would your first international priority be if you were in Congress right now? Uh, I think it would be this making us healthier at home, uh, not just the pandemic, but uh, creating a, a more equal uh, form of capitalism in America, because if we're not strong at home, we can't be strong abroad. Um, I also have a second priority, which I think uh, uh, Biden articulated in his national security strategy that uh, uh, Secretary of State Blinken uh, un unveiled about a month ago, which is to take the foreign out of foreign policy, make foreign policy relevant to average Americans, uh, foreign policy for the middle class. And that includes a focus on, on real threats uh, like Russia and China, but also uh, a focus on the pandemic, climate, and, and domestic terrorism, which are real threats as well. Well, you know, one thing that has really brought the issue of not necessarily state power, but certainly foreign you know, power from a foreign country is um, the recent hacking of the colonial pipeline. And uh, you guys, um, you know, felt it more on the East Coast. But um, in terms of hacking and again, whether or not state sponsor, that's that's maybe a little iffy. But um, what do you think that the the nation can do about something like this when we've got all these businesses and um, and sort of service providers that are all very different. How do we, you know, go about attacking the regulations there, making sure that they're all shored up so we don't have uh, vulnerabilities uh, like this? Well, um, uh, a New York Times reporter named David Sanger writes a lot about cybersecurity. And he wrote a book recently at the Wilson Center, which, as you know, I headed for the last 10 years, called The Perfect Weapon. And sadly, cyber in various forms, one form of which is ransomware, which is the one that was used against Colonial Pipeline, which is extortion, uh, is a, a very effective weapon against private sector firms, government entities, state entities, everybody. And 
these hackers, in this case, it was a criminal syndicate, we think, uh, based in Russia, uh, are, are uh, enormously effective. And uh, yes, what happened was a ransomware attack against uh, a colonial pipe di- pipelines, uh, uh, IT systems, the information about, I guess, its employees and account and, and, and its customers was uh, ransomed. In other words, it was it was stolen, basically. And if Colonial wanted to get that back, it had to pay money, and it ended up paying money, uh, $5 million. Uh, but in order to, I, I, I'm not exactly sure why this decision was made, but they decided at the same time as they were negotiating this, that they would shut down the distribution of fuel uh, to the East Coast. And it turned out this was about 50% of our fuel distribution in this country, and it led to runs on gas stations and and was it if, if we didn't have a wake up call 400 times before, you know, hello, people, long lines at gas stations just a couple of weeks ago, uh, gas prices uh, going up about 25 percent should be yet another one. So what can we do about this? Uh, it has been proposed that this would ransomware would be an area where we might try to have an international agreement uh, to try to curb it, uh, because lots of countries and entities are afflicted, not just the United States. Uh, and I think that's a good idea. Short of that, uh, we have to invest more heavily, as we are doing, in government capability. There's now going to be a cyber czar in the White House, mandated by Congress. That's something Congress actually got done. Uh, there is more capability in the Homeland Security Department uh, to find uh, uh, and try to prevent cyber attacks and to respond uh, uh, promptly. But the other piece has to be uh, a seamless connection between the private sector and the government, because uh, a lot of these entities are private, like Colonial Pipeline. Uh, and Congress has just, uh, uh, pa- I don't know if it's passed yet, but it's passing, it will pass, I think, a law that, re- oh, no, I'm wrong, it wasn't Congress, it was Joe Biden, uh, issued an executive order that says that any private entity that deals with the government, and that's a long list, it's not every one, uh, has to notify the government when when it's uh, the subject of a ransomware attack so we can find out sooner and make sure that we know the entire universe at risk and that the response is more uh, prompt and more effective. What do you think about regulating or trying to regulate Bitcoin or some of these cryptocurrencies that allow these kind of ransom payments to be made? Uh, And I don't know if that would end everything, but it seems like it allows, um, from my very rudimentary understanding, that it allows these, it's a pipeline that you sort of allows the money to transfer without the traditional banking um, tradition, you know, restrictions and and tracking. Um, Would that be something that at some point we might have to do to to prevent all this money from flowing back and forth? Well, uh, I don't know that that would prevent everything, as you just said, but... uh, Bitcoin is often dark money, money that that travels that we don't find out about until it's too late. It is often funding for terrorist organizations. It's also used, uh, you know, in the open. Uh, Elon Musk, who's just left California for Texas, uh, has suggested uh, buying his cars with Bitcoin. So uh, I I'm not enough of an expert to to be sure, but I certainly think it should be looked at. I don't. I think you're not wrong and at least the, the bad, the, the, the downside of Bitcoin uh, should be in some way uh, regulated or exposed. Right. It just seems like we should make it a little harder <laughs> to, to pay the ransom. 
Uh, one of the things your book talks about is, um, and this is really just sort of a core issue, is about congressional oversight with regard to foreign policy. We've got this very unique system where you have the president with the um, the military reporting up to the president as commander in chief and sort of being the executive function, sort of being, you know, the top of all of the the defense departments, et cetera. But then you have Congress that's supposed to have oversight. Uh, and the fact that congressional oversight, to the extent that it even exists, really depends on information from the thing they're supposed to be overseeing. So what do we do about this structural issue that seems to be preventing more congressional involvement? Well, it's, it's, that's a big part of the book. The, the last chapter is entitled The Incredible Shrinking Congress. Uh, and, you know, back in the day, uh, our founders uh, envisioned the separation of powers. Our Constitution um, sets up three branches of government. Article one, one, one is the legislative branch, uh, which makes the laws, hello, makes the laws and funds the government. Article two, not one, next, the executive branch, which carries out the laws, uh, and Congress has an oversight role there in making sure they're carried out faithfully and appropriately. Article three, the judiciary, which makes sure that the laws and the actions of the executive comply with our Constitution. So uh, it sort of kind of worked this way um, for a long time. And there was this old adage that uh, foreign policy stops at the water's edge, and usually uh, there was some unanimity between Congress and the executive on foreign policy. Well, oops, you know, as civility ended, that ended too. And uh, what really changed, at least to me, and I, I make this argument in the book, is after 9-11, uh, Dick Cheney was vice president. Uh, Don Rumsfeld was uh, secretary of defense. And... Uh, between them, they and others, enablers, articulated this notion of unitary executive. And their argument was that the president is commander-in-chief in an emergency. That's true. That's in the Constitution. But that they, under the president's commander-in-chief powers, uh, could basically <laughs> run our response to 9-11 and, and our policies in a dangerous world without consulting Congress, uh, and based on legal opinions written by the Justice Department, which Congress didn't see. And there I was in these senior roles in Congress trying to find out, uh, well, what are black sites? These were these interrogation sites in foreign countries. What are we doing to people? I actually was briefed on these so-called enhanced interrogation procedures and tried to find out if there had been any White House guidance, never got the information. Uh, and uh, et cetera. Uh, surveillance is another uh, issue. It's in, it's in the book. Congress passed a law in the 70s called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. But it turns out that a lot of our surveillance policies right after 9-11 did not comply with FISA. I didn't know that. I kept asking, uh, do our policies completely comply with law? Answer, yes. Well, oops, what law? law the legal opinions of the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department, which we learned later, uh, and uh, very troubling. And, and now a lot of those policies are strictly under FISA. Congress amended laws. Congress reorganized our intelligence community. I played a big role in that. I think that was one of our success stories, setting up the director of national intelligence. Uh, the way intelligence estimates are written is very different from how they were written uh, before 9-11 and before the false predictions of weapons of mass destruction. In, in Iraq. And so 
uh, progress, but uh, is it perfect? Absolutely not. Well, so, uh, you know, so you write a little bit about the Obama administration and about how even Barack Obama, who had some, uh, you know, some more left-leaning, of course, views on declassifying documents and, and things like that, still was pretty reluctant to give up his power and secrecy that comes with, you know, with the executive in, in this area. And since Biden was part of that administration, are you, are you, are you hopeful or are you not hopeful that that he and his administration might be more open with Congress and allow some more of the oversight that, that you're talking about? Well, I think uh, President Obama, who spent very little time in Congress, was in the Senate for two years and during a, a big part of that was running for president, gave up too early on Congress. It's, it's not an easy problem. I just hope Joe Biden takes his vitamins and doesn't give up. It's really important to forge, reset that relationship big time. But anyway, I think Obama gave up on a lot of it and I think did the things that others before him had done, signing statements to bills, clarifying uh, his authority, but really what he was going to uh, pay attention to and what he wasn't going to pay attention to, uh, authorizing drone strikes in numerous countries, uh, even though Congress hadn't authorized the use of military force, weaponized drones or uh, military force uh, in those specific countries. I mean, in case anybody missed this, uh, Congress has acted twice since 9-11 uh, to authorize the use of military force. One was in 2001, which everyone except one person voted for to authorize the use of force against those who attacked us. And the second one was in 2002 to authorize the use of military force in Iraq. Um, I, full confession, throw your tomatoes, but it's virtual, so they won't hit me, except they'll hurt me. Uh, I believed that intelligence, and I voted uh, to authorize force, and it's in the book. I came home uh, to tell my uh, business mogul husband that I was going to vote to authorize the force in Iraq, and he said, you're going to do what? And I said, I have read everything. I, I not only read the National Intelligence Estimate, I read all the backup material. I've traveled to London and traveled to the Middle East. I've talked to everybody. And I think Saddam Hussein is increasing his weapons of mass destruction and, and intends to use them against us. And my husband's deathless prose was, uh, that's a lot of crap. <laughs> and I said, how, how can you say you haven't done any of this? He said, you'll see. And he was right. And, you know, some people were right, but a majority in Congress uh, voted to authorize that. And my, but my point is, not only it was wrong and we were wrong, that's my, my view, and I will say that publicly forever. But after that, the, these AUMFs, especially the one on Afghanistan, has been used uh, as the justification for military action in 44 uh, incidences in 19 countries. And that is wrong. Congress needs to repeal and replace the 2001 AUMF and either authorize force against some named groups that didn't even exist in 2001 or authorize use of force only in certain locations or in, in other ways exercise its proper oversight responsibility. It's funding these things. It needs to oversee them. 
Well, though, you also point out there are members of Congress who don't want to be part of this. Maybe they're burned by the fact that um, they were misled into uh, votes on the Iraq war. And so, you know, no one wants to be on the record anymore. Um, but for whatever reason, they, uh, you know, maybe it seems easier to to tweet about these things than it is to actually cast a vote on on certain engagements. And so you actually write about sort of how remarkable it is that Congress is complicit in its own, you know, shrinking. Yes, I do. Uh, You know, back to the negative ad. It's much easier and it penetrates better to blame the other guy rather than stand up for what you believe in. And, uh, you know, abdicating responsibility comes pretty easy. And I, I said in the book that Congress, some in Congress don't want to own these military actions if they turn out badly. Uh, it's also true, I think, that the business model of Congress is broken. That doesn't mean every person. In fact, I can think of very impressive people in both parties uh, who have to be frustrated. Uh, but at any rate, uh, we won't go there. But the business model now is blame the other side for not solving the problem. Because if you work with the other side, you're bipartisan. And if you're bipartisan, you're uh, possibly going to get a challenge from the left or the right in your primary. And in many races, the primary is the outcome because districts are drawn in a lopsided way. And obviously, one of the ways to change that is what California has done impressively, which is to have citizen commissions draw the the congressional lines and also to have this so-called jungle primary where everybody runs against everybody, where you would uh, uh, not be smart uh, to start blaming people. Um, The goal would be, in in each case, to work with people uh, to build a bigger tent and build more support for yourself. Well, and one of the the things that you talk about, because you do write extensively about the Iraq war in general, but also about about that vote in particular, and about how misled um, you know different people were, both in Congress and and outside of Congress, even in the defense apparatus itself or the, the intelligence community, um, as we call it. But there are these moments in history where trust in government breaks down, and Watergate is, of course, one which you also had a front row seat too. But also the the Iraq war resolution may have also played into why, and this goes to actually a question that one of our viewers has, which is why so many people distrust the government, why they don't necessarily believe um, facts uh, (laughs) that that, that, that come from the government. I mean, do you you think that that's all part of this issue? And and what do we do about about this complete lack of trust? Well, how many hours do we have to talk about this? Uh, maybe I'll have to come back in another in a future session. But um, I think there is a breakdown in trust. Uh, but I don't think it's all because the government performs badly. I think it's a combination of things. I think there is a breakdown in community, if you think about it. Uh, a guy named Robert Putnam at Harvard uh, uh, Kennedy School wrote a book years ago called Bowling Alone. And this is kind of haunting. But his point was, Church has broken down. Neighborhoods have broken down. Uh, you know, the, the PTA has broken down. And we don't have the, the kinds of uh, things to knit us together that we used to have. Um, civics is barely taught in school. So there's all that. And then you overlay the rise of social media, which I get what it, here we are on zooming away here, uh, what it brings us. But I also get what it takes from us. And 
people comfortably are in their own silo, talking to their their own tribe, or listening to their own news that reinforces the, the the positions they already have, rather than engaging with each other. It's the same point I'm really making about Congress. And you put that together, and nobody knows what real facts are anymore, and nobody knows. Uh, uh, and there's no real advantage to working across tribal lines. And that is just horrible. And so uh, I get excited when, when there are small glimmers of hope. And I think today is the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. I think it is today. And I'm actually, I would say, um, you know, what a horrible thing, but glimmers of hope that a broad community of people, not all, uh, African-American have come together around that and want to make society better. And, you know, count me in. Well, one of the things you also um, talk about that sort of gets into this is this, the idea that now a lot of what we might think of as surveillance is being done by um, non-governmental entities, these private companies, social media companies, and, uh, and, and others like Google. Um, and so what is the government's role there when you're not, you know, when the, when the First Amendment doesn't apply really anymore? Uh, because you, and I think what I'm asking for is some, um, <laughs> some help to understand that there are things going on in the background. Because when you watch the leaders of these companies, when you watch, you know, Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg go to these congressional hearings, um, it's embarrassing. The people don't know what they're talking about. The members of Congress don't know what they're talking about, or they just want to talk and not actually listen to the answer. And so you just sort of hope that there's somebody, there's some smart people somewhere <laughs> that are actually doing the important work of of trying to figure out what to do in this space. Ask someone who spent so much time uh, in Congress, in meetings that you can never tell anyone about. Um, what, do, what can we hope is, is actually happening? Well, uh, uh, for one thing, there is legislation, the Communications Act of, I think it's 1995, which is the, the law that I think Donald Trump hated the most. And actually, Mark Warner, who is the senior Democrat on uh, the chairman of House of Senate Intelligence and was in the tech industry before, also hates, which exempts the tech companies from regulation. Now, go figure. They're bigger than the most governments in the world, you know, one, one, one tech company. And the combo, many of them based here, is gi ginormous. So uh, what would we responsibly want to regulate. Well, some of them uh, have said they would embrace amending that law so that there is regulation. Obviously, if they're all subject to the same re regulation, it, it eliminates competitive disadvantage. Uh, but uh, let's understand, they have an enormous ability to surveil us. Um, and so do credit card companies. I mean, don't you get, or I do anyway, some little uh, email from some some card company saying, did you buy this these tennis shoes in in uh, you know in Ohio, and uh, possibly I, I can't remember, <laughs> but but you know now that we do everything by mail, I definitely can't remember. But back in the day, uh, the answer would probably be no. So they know what per they they have algorithms that pop out things that look wrong, and they are able to alert you, and they put holds on your cards. This is a public service, but it also tells you, oh my God, they know everything I'm doing. And uh, guess what? And and now they're asking, you know, you have in order to get this information, you have to agree to cookies. 
on, on certain emails, which enables people to see what you're doing, what your tastes are. And then you get a, uh, you know, a notice from some clothing company that says, uh, you, you bought that. So wouldn't you be interested in this? And you go, Oh my God, stay away, stay away. Uh, but, uh, the, the irony of this, and I've pointed this out many times, is while we insist that the surveillance, and we should, that, that the surveillance policies in the United States strictly comply with law and the Constitution, uh, you, know, you need an individualized warrant under the 14th Amendment to uh, get, get somebody's contents. Um, we uh, give away more information than that, uh, voluntarily or out of ignorance, uh, to all these big tech and credit card companies. Uh, what is the way forward? Well, uh, it will require a big conversation, which we're not very good at these days. We'll have to come out of our little tribal tents and mix it up and see uh, how much regulation makes sense. Uh, I support the First Amendment. I'm not against free speech, but the, even the Supreme Court said you don't have the right to, to cry fire in a crowded theater. And so some speech, which uh, incites people to violence is not protected uh, and the violence is not protected. And we have to understand that little gray area, I think. It's very tricky and make sure that we are not inciting, that some of us are not inciting ourselves or others to violence in this country. We're having civil conversations about differences on issues. And I made the point that uh, we can solve problems better if we uh, respect other points of view and realize we don't have a monopoly. None of us does on, on, uh, wisdom. Uh, well, that's, uh, not something you hear every day. <laughs> I have a question here. Um, I want to make, I'm going to re so forgive me. I'm just going to read this cause I want to make sure I get this right. This is there's a lot of attention these days being paid to unidentified aerial phenomena, formerly known as UFOs. Are you concerned that these might be from foreign powers rather than from outer space uh, and indicate possible threats to our national security? That does seem to be the explanation when you see things and you go, oh, that's maybe as a spaceship. And they go, no, it's just uh, a drone, <laughs> which is maybe worse. <laughs> you know, I'm one person who thinks that uh, uh, the FAA decision to allow for uh, drones in, you know, the, the, the sale of uh, drones uh, below 500 feet and so forth in, in civil airspace is fine. I, it, I, I think it is not fine. I think we're going to end up with these, you know, if we, if we don't like the cicadas in Washington, and I sure don't, there's a gigantic noise level here. Uh, these little buzzy things are going to be all around and they could be used for mischief. I mean, let's understand they could carry an explosive device or something and uh and or you know if they got on an airfield which is illegal uh do something bad to jet engines and all that so i'm i'm not a fan of that on the ufo thing i i just don't have enough information to make a judgment uh i i've been reading lately that some very credible people think they're actually up there um but i don't have enough information yet to make a judgment uh, i would say that uh you know foreign governments and and rogue actors making mischief is easily done through cyber. We've just been talking about that. And you don't have to fly around up there. Uh, you can fly right into uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the back doors of our computer systems, which are ubiquitous. So you were never given the super, you probably couldn't tell me anyway, but like the super triple secret 
briefing that I think I've read that presidents get about the potential for UFOs. You, you were, was you were in the Gang of Eight, right? So you were in the, I was you know, in the Gang were- of Eight. I don't recall a briefing on that topic, and I can't tell you what I was briefed on. Uh, and I, you would have remembered this. <laughs> I don't think that would be one of them that I was briefed on. It doesn't mean none, nobody ever was. The Gang of Eight, for anyone who doesn't know that, is the See, is the leadership of Congress bipartisan and the leadership of the intelligence community uh, committees bipartisan. Uh, now, before we have a time for just an, a couple more questions, and one of the questions that tie, that I'm going to tie into some, something that an audience member asked about is the Republican Party. And you actually take great pains in your book to be fairly uh, nonpartisan. I mean, you are a Democrat, of course, but um, but you acknowledge, you know, you give credit where credit is due um, to either to either side of the aisle, which uh, which is actually refreshing as someone who has to who, who reads a lot of political books. Um, and you do talk a bit, uh, though you don't have many nice things to say about Dick Cheney. But what what do you make of his daughter, uh, Liz Cheney, and her efforts to de-Trumpify the Republican Party or threaten to start a new one versus uh, Trump's continuing um, support, I mean, continuing sort of relevance for the party? Well, I'm a lifelong card-carrying Democrat. I got inspired to go into politics. Actually, I think when Nancy Pelosi did, we were just talking recently about how we both were ushers, get this, at the Democratic Convention in Los Angeles in 1960, when John Kennedy gave his acceptance speech. We were both two two years old at the time. (laughs) Whatever. Anyway, uh, you know, I'm a Democrat, and I'm not planning to change parties ever. I've been pitched to do that occasionally, and I've always said, no, I'm not doing it. I think we also need, in addition to a Democratic Party, a vibrant Republican Party that stands for things, uh, not just against things, and that uh, is willing to engage on hard on hard problems. Otherwise, we don't move the country forward. I think what's happened in the House is, uh, to use a, a word that maybe we should take out of the lexicon, deplorable. And I applaud Liz Cheney, uh, whom I know, uh, not extremely well, but I certainly know her, uh, for standing up the way she did. And, and Adam Kinzinger, too and the others who have tried to do this. I mean, what are they fighting for? They're fighting for a Republican Party that speaks about ideas. Uh, and, and I think that that's wonderful. And, you know, regardless of whether you like Donald Trump or you don't like Donald Trump, and obviously a lot of people still like Donald Trump. I mean, deal with it. It's true. Uh, I, I haven't seen him put forward ideas lately and, or anyone around him. And I think that that is hurting the Republican Party, as would somebody like him in the Democratic Party hurt the Democratic Party. Gotcha. Okay, well, we have time for one more question. And this is one I've been holding till the end. And you actually alluded to this early on in the conversation when you talked about um, you some of your first work in Washington um, related to the Watergate scandal and sort of being in the room when some of these issues were happening during the, you know, the massacre was it saturday night massacre where where nixon tried to was was looking for someone to fire um his attorney general um and this was a really uh, people forget i think especially people today forget what a what a really tumultuous time 
this was where you were having there were political literally actual assassinations happening there were people being uh, people in places being bombed and now we have this you know the watergate scandal and you wrote uh, at the time the country seemed to be coming apart i expected gunfire in the streets and yet america's constitutional system proved resilient once more even in the face of repeated challenges and abuses does it still is it still are you hopeful well, that was, for me, you know, a, a young woman and a young mother. My son had been born, my first child, I have four children, was born a few weeks before the so-called Saturday Night Massacre. For anyone who uh, has never heard of it, it was just what you said. It was uh, Archibald Cox, whom some know of, was a volunteer professor at Harvard Law School, which I actually attended, Harvard Law School, that is. And he was running an inquiry into Watergate, and it clearly... Uh, was going to embarrass, if not worse, the White House, and Richard Nixon wanted him fired. And that inquiry had been created by the Justice Department, so we asked the Attorney General to fire him. Attorney General refused. He then asked the Deputy Attorney General to fire him. He refused, too. Both of them were fired. And going down the chairs, who'd they get to fire him? Robert Bork. That was part of the... Mm, that was that was then. Uh, but at any rate... Uh, it was on a Saturday, and there I was on my porch in Georgetown expecting the government to come apart, young mother, and so forth, and I described that. A segue to 1-6 this year. This was even more terrifying, I thought, and so you ask me, am I uh, more hopeful? Um, I, I got to believe that this country really is special. I do believe it. Uh, I want it to be what Ronald Reagan, not a card-carrying Democrat, described as the shining city on the hill. I think many of us hold values. It's not just that our Constitution uh, says uh, there's a right of free speech, there's a right of, you know, uh, 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 to be protected by the rule of law, etc. But many of us hold values, and, and that may be true around the world, but certainly here, uh, that uh, our universal values. People like me, the, the, the daughter of a refugee from Nazi Germany and, and someone uh, who, whose uh, uh, mother came, came from uh, uh, immigrants from Russia, sees the opportunities I have here that my parents and grandparents did not have. So um, I'm still hopeful. I think a lot of stuff has happened lately, and certainly 1 6 happened uh, that could. Uh, make that will make a deeper scar than than uh, the Saturday massacre and the, and the Nixon in, impeachment and resignation made. And so, how much of this can the country take? Well, in my book, just to say, insanity defense: uh, how our failure to solve hard problems has made us less safe. I think we could rouse the political will to solve some hard problems. And one of them is the over-militarization of American power. And I, we can solve that. We can have a foreign policy strategy, which we now have. We can have a president devoted to bipartisanship, which we have. Please don't quit on it. Please don't quit on it, Joe Biden. And we can have uh, good people stay in public life. And, you know, let's give another shout out to Liz Cheney. Uh, even if you disagree with her, and I do on most issues, uh, she's staying. She didn't quit public life. She made him fire her. She's standing for re-election, and she's speaking out. 
I think that's that's pretty darn good. And I, you know, uh, I think maybe she's a beacon in a certain way for a reason to be hopeful. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Many thanks to Congresswoman Harmon, Distinguished Fellow and President Emerita of the Wilson Center, and author of the new book, Insanity Defense, Why Our Failure to Confront Hard National Security Problems Makes Us Less Safe. Her book is available at your local bookstore and, of course, online. Thank you also to all of our viewers. I am Melissa Kane, and now this virtual meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.